Oh, wow. This is where we're at. PPI. So this is number five in our six-week uh, series looking at uh, prayer. Um, I, somehow, I think maybe we, we've um, not quite grasped the power that there is in prayer. I've read uh, many books that uh, talk about significant moves of God and changes in churches and in communities. And the thread that seems to run through all of those is the fact that people prayed. But not only people prayed individually, but then people caught the vision for what God was doing amongst them and were willing to come together to pray. And so over these last four weeks, and now we're into the fifth week, we're just looking at um, mobilizing ourselves to be a people who pray and see the power of prayer impacting not only our lives, not only this church, but this community and, and further afield. So we took a bit of a journey. Week one, we looked at the importance of praying together, and we went through all of those points, which was quite good. The impetus, what's the drive, we believe... Uh, Better than we behave was the phrase that we came along with and said, do you know, we've got to start behaving like we believe. And on the back of that, we moved into uh, four principles of praying together. And we looked at our first principle was about the fact that we need to be God-focused. And there were a number of different Bible uh, heroes that we spoke about who were so focused on their relationship with God, they were bold as they approached him in prayer. So that was our, our first of uh, four principles, and we're going to look at the other three today. Then we had a bit of a stop last week as we had a family service, and we looked at the model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples with the Lord's Prayer. And that's the same prayer that we are looking at week by week by week as we're going through the prayer course in our midweek groups. But then we come to uh, today. Another principle. So the principle one two weeks ago was about God focus. And the principle today, we're going to look at principle two, principle three, and principle four. So number two. Do you like people? You know, do you, do you like... I mean, here's, here we have a church, like, and, and this is called the fellowship. This is called God's family. Um, but do you like the people around you? Yeah, because it's really important to get on with people, to be part of the family, to be uh, fellowshipping together. Because we're on a journey together. God's drawn us together, and therefore because he's drawn us together, he's uh, decided in his wisdom that what he wants to do here and now, he wants to do with us. Together. So you're part of it. So what we will see God doing amongst us and our community and even to the ends of the earth, what we'll see is the important part that you play in this. Because we're called to do it together. If you go through the book of Acts, I just looked at a few uh, different scriptures through the book of Acts that talked about the importance 
of being uh, a fellowship together. These uh, words we've looked at before. Acts 2, and out of Acts 2, these very words, we've pulled together what we classify as our core values as a church. We have a strap line, we have a vision statement that says, uh, Basingstoke Baptist Church, knowing Jesus, making Jesus known. So if you ask anybody, what is the reason for being, why are we here? The reason we're here is to know God better and to make sure that those who don't know him come to know him. So that's what we're about. We're knowing Jesus. We spend time together learning and serving and caring and, and getting to have the, the Jesus look. We are little, Christ, little Christs, Christians, little Christs. So we know Jesus. And when we ask the question, you know, what would Jesus do? We know because we've spent time with him. And then the other part of our, our mission statement, our vision statement, is that we would make him known. That those who don't know him, those who are not aware of the fact that God is alive, will come to a revelation of that truth because of what we do. And then we've got five core values, and those five core values have come out of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42 through to 47. And for us, those things are... Um, the fact that we are a worshipping community, that we gather around God's word, that's important to us. The word of God is taught. So we worship together, there's teaching, there's ministry. We look after one another and we look after those that are, are not part of our fellowship. And then we've got, uh, we've got ministry, we've got teaching, we've got worship. What's the next one? Uh, evangelism. We're going to reach out. We've got to reach out and to make sure that the community around us knows that uh, Jesus is alive. And then the other one, of course, is the fellowship, which is what we pick up with these words. This is what Luke writes, Dr. Luke, to, uh, of the moving of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. They devoted themselves. They devoted they, that's plural, devoted themselves, plural, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That's the gathering of uh, believers, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone, so that's, for, that's everybody there. They were filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All of the believers, this, that community, were gathering together. All of us. Nobody was left out. Were together and had everything in common. Selling uh, their possessions and goods they gave to everybody who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. This whole thing about being together is so, so important. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's something about a gathering that gathers. And that's the way the church is meant to be. When we recognize who we are, when we recognize the family that God's placed us in, we become attractive to those outside. You know, one or two can do so much, but three and four can do so much more. Five and six, even more. And when there is a crowd, there is an awareness that things are happening. And as we grow, I believe people would recognize that something is happening amongst that fellowship. 
They come together. They spend time together. It goes on in Acts. All the believers, this is Acts chapter 4, were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons amongst them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. There's something going on amongst these early believers that I think we probably miss out on. You see, what happens is that when we get to a point where we're okay, I don't need you, the self-centered focus absolutely corrodes the basis of the Christian faith, which is fellowship. So I've got the roof over my head, I've got a bed to sleep in, I've got food in my larder, I, I don't need anything. Yet, there are many people who do need And it's meant to be our responsibility to make sure that needs are met. The gathering of God's people is to honor him and to ensure that we bless others. The door out of here, of blessing into our community, should be greater than the door that we come in. And this is so clear in this fellowship. Did people have problems with um, selling stuff and, and bringing the money and sharing it? No. No, not at all. We'll do that. Because we've come to know something far more valuable than stuff. And that value is in the people. Fellowship is so, so important. I don't know how many funerals that I've done um, and uh, being a minister down in uh, beautiful Bexhill-on-Sea, which is, uh, well, I always used to remember that people used to retire to Eastbourne if you were wealthy, but you could retire to Bexhill if you were less wealthy. And therefore, a lot of less wealthy people retired into our town, which meant then that a lot of people died. And we actually, actually had an undertaker's in our village which was only a small village, but we actually had a branch of uh, a co-op funeral care, which meant then that I gladly took loads and loads of funerals. I'd do anyone's funeral. I don't care whether you went to church or not. I even took funerals for people who uh, wanted humanist funerals. So we don't want any talking about God. And I used to turn up at people's homes, and their desire was that it was going to be a humanist funeral and no God in it. And I have yet to do a humanist funeral that actually conformed to the model of a humanist funeral. Because you find yourself around people's homes, and as you spend time talking to family who have lost a loved one, the one thing that they desire is hope. And the only hope that we have is in Christ. I've lost count of the number of times that I've been specifically asked to do a non-God funeral that's included Psalm 23 in the Lord's Prayer. How does that happen? Because people want a hope. I love it. And I get the opportunity to meet people in their most difficult times when they're grieving the loss of a loved one. You see... As a family, as a church, 
a fellowship, we should be putting aside whatever divides and coming to a point of saying, no, this is what we're united about, which is telling the good news of Jesus. Sharing what we have. The one thing that I can say about this church, which has been absolutely brilliant, is the fact that uh, we have a generosity germination. We've done some bonkers stuff after, over the last sort of uh, six or so months. We, we've, we've had animals here at Christmas time. We've done egg hunts uh, over the field. And, and at no cost to people except for us. And I believe that God sees that. The moment that we are willing to spend what we have, to give away what we've got to others, then there is going to be an impact made upon them. We will see the fruit, I can assure you. Fellowship, really important. Acts chapter 5, another one. Apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders amongst the people. All the believers used to meet together in uh, Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It's just this thing about, do you know what? When we get fellowship right, God seems to want to add people And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Acts 2.47. And here we have in Acts 5 verse 16. The Lord added to their number. So fellowship's really important. And it's down to us. And it starts with something like, can you talk to somebody when you come into church? Just say hi. Just start a conversation. And if you've never seen them before then introduce yourself. Hi, my name is, great to see you here. And when they turn to you and say, yeah, you spoke to me last week, don't worry about it. It's fine. I, I forget people. We all forget people. We're all forgiving. Fellowship, really important. We don't need to do that bit there. All that bit there. Fellowship, that's a really important thing. The thing about it is, let's just, just to up the ante on that one a little bit more. You see, fellowship is not only the fact that we are called together. We've actually been called um, to walk in closeness and intimacy with one another. This is why we started life groups. This is why we started to say Sunday was not enough time, the hour and a bit or two hours or whatever that we're here. It's not enough time for us to grow in a deeper relationship with one another. Therefore, you need to be part of a life group. If you're not part of a life group, can I just say to you, you need to be part of a life group. Did I just make that really, really clear? You, you definitely need to be part of a life group. If you're not part of a, lo- a small group, then you're not getting alongside people who you can share things with that may be more personal that you wouldn't share in a larger context. It's great having people come and share and encourage on a microphone on a Sunday. But all of you have got something to say. But you wouldn't say it here, but in a small group, that may very well be the place where you get your support, you get your encouragement. And it's a beautiful place because that's where you start to pray for each other. One of the lovely things about the small group that I'm part of that meets in my home is over the period of time that we've been running that small group, it's been lovely to see how our prayer has changed. And how it's almost got to a point now, you know, it's, uh, we need to pray and then I'm sort of, oh, time is moving on. I love the idea of not wanting to stop praying. That sounds pretty cool. 
So fellowship's really important, but making sure we're in fellowship isn't just about being here on, on a Sunday. It's about making sure that we avail ourselves of the community of God's people through the week. Are you in a small group? There may be a reason why you're not. And I, I completely understand if you've got a, a justifiable reason. But if you've just not tried it, then I, I, I say, please try it. Now, here's, here's just another one. This will blow you out of the water. If you're part of a small group and you've been meeting um, since last September and things have been going all right, it will get shaken up again in September. So there will be new group leaders, some new group leader training, and we'll be uh, distributing people around again. So... You make sure you're here on the first Sunday in September. Otherwise, there might not be room in the group that you used to go to. But again, to start, coming together. It's really important. The second principle that we're looking at today, which is number three, is about a clean heart. I, I, I love stories of revival. So, this week, I found myself researching the uh, Hebridean revival. Let's go on from there. Let's go for this one. The Hebridean revival. Has anybody ever heard of the Hebridean revival? Okay, well, it's a bit of an education for you. 1949, Hebridean revival. This was a, a, a preacher by the name of Duncan Campbell. He wrote uh, about what happened uh, in the Hebrides. So he describes, first of all here, what um, revival is. He says, when I speak of revival, I'm not thinking of high-pressure evangelism. I'm not thinking of crusades or any special efforts convened and organized by men. That is not in my mind at all. Revival is something altogether different from evangelism on its highest level. Revival is the moving of God in the community, and suddenly the community comes, becomes God-conscious before a word is said by any man representing any special effort. I've read a number of different articles about revivals that have happened around the world. And one of the things that is so characteristic about a revival is the fact that God is doing it. It's not that the body, the, the, the church gathered, starts to be more active, uh, more persistent in their uh, efforts to share the news of good news of Jesus Christ. What, what it's very clear about is the fact that God visits tangibly and touches people's lives. So the Hebridean revival, he says this, this is Duncan Campbell, he goes on. Now I'm sure that you will be interested to know how in November 1949 this gracious movement began in the island of Lewis. Here he goes, he says, just want to say this, this is, uh, if anyone feels that they're discounted from being part of something like this. Two old women... One of them 84 years of age and the other 82. One of them was stone blind, were greatly burdened because of the appalling state of their own parish. 
It was true that not a single young person attended public worship. Not a single young man or young woman went to the church. And those two women were greatly concerned and they made it a special matter of prayer. I remember looking into the uh, Pentecostal outpouring, the uh, Azusa Street uh, revival at the turn of the 20th century. And what amazed me was that the... uh, the guy who was most instrumental in bringing about what was a Holy Spirit move upon a community of people was a guy who sat in the corner with a bag on his head. Okay? He sat in the corner with a bag on his head and he prayed. And one of the things that I come to know about this guy who did not want any distractions, this was the thing that he just put this bag on his head, and of course that was in the days before plastic bags, so it was a paper bag, I'm sure, and there were probably air holes in it. But as he prayed, he prayed that the Spirit of God would fall amongst the community in Azusa Street. And this guy, which I found quite amazing, really, um, was uh, blind in one eye. And the funniest thing is that his name was Seymour. That just made me chuckle, really. But when we look at the fact that his name was Seymour, he did see more. He was more aware of what God was doing than anybody else, even though he prayed with a bag on his head. So Seymour, one-eyed, prayer, intercessor. And there's a couple of ladies here, one one who was stone blind. You don't need to be able to see to bring in a move of God amongst the community. There was a verse from Isaiah, this verse, that was very much on their minds as they prayed. For I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They were so burdened that both of them decided to spend so much time in prayer twice a week. On a Tuesday, they got on their knees at 10 o'clock at night and remained on their knees till 3 or 4 in the morning. Two old women together in a humble cottage. One night, one of the sisters has a vision. Now remember, in revival, God works in wonderful ways. A vision came to one of them, and in the vision she saw a church of her father uh, crowded with young people, packed to the doors, and a strange minister standing in the pulpit. And she was so impressed by the vision that she sent for the parish minister. And of course, knowing that these two women were women of prayer, he was uh, willing to respond to the invitation and called in at their cottage. That morning, one of the sisters said to the minister, you must do something about it. And I would suggest that you call your office bearers together and that you spend with us at least two nights in prayer a week. The things that a minister loves when somebody says, you need to be praying more. Tuesday and Friday, if you gather your elders together, you can meet in a barn up the road and we'll stay here and meet in this cottage And that's exactly what happened. The minister called his office bearers, that's his deacons, his treasurer, his secretary together, and they began to pray, seven of them in a barn, on a Tuesday and on a Friday night. The testimony goes on. Well, that continued for some weeks indeed, I believe almost a month and a half, until one night... 
And this is what I'm anxious for you to get hold of. One night they were kneeling in the barn, pleading this promise. I will pour water on him that is thirsty, floods upon dry ground. When one young man, a deacon in the church, got up and read Psalm 24, these words. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. That's what he prays. As he reads those words and prays those words, the testimony here says the man closed his Bible. Looking down at the minister and the other office bearers, he said this, maybe crude words, but perhaps not so crude in his Gaelic language. He said, it seems to me to be so much humbug to be praying as we are praying, to be waiting as we are waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Then he lifted his two hands. And I'm telling you, just as the minister told me it happened, he lifted his two hands and he prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? But he got no further. That young man fell to his knees and into a trance. Duncan Campbell continues. He says, now don't ask me to explain this because I can't. He fell into a trance and is now lying on the floor of the barn. And in the words of the minister, at that moment, he and the other office bearers were gripped by the conviction that a God-sent revival must ever be related to holiness, must ever be related to godliness. Are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? The man that God will trust with revival, that was his conviction. When that happened in the barn, the power of God swept into the parish and an awareness of God gripped the community such as hadn't been known for over a hundred years. An awareness of God, that's revival, that is true revival. And on the following day, the looms were silent, little work was done on the farms as men and women gave themselves to thinking on eternal things, gripped by eternal realities. We have this amazing opportunity to come into God's presence to intercede and to pray for his very presence to impact us and this community. But it comes out of clean hands and a pure heart. It's recognizing that we come into God's presence dirty. But he, upon the cross, has given us everything that makes us clean. And then when we are cleansed and we are clothed in his righteousness we find that the power of our prayers increases. Psalm 66 just picks up on the fact that when God listens to your prayers, come and listen, all of you who fear God, let me tell you what he has done for me. And it says that if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And I think so often our prayers fall on the ground because we're holding on to stuff that we need to let go of. There was a bloke in here earlier today who got out a dustbin and got kids to throw small pieces of paper into the bin. And we've got to remember that it's as simple as that as we come before God in prayer. We say, Lord, test my heart. Check my hands. How clean am I that you would use me as a vessel for revival? And here's the deal, isn't it? Because this is quite interesting. So, 
the testimony from the Hebridean revival is that people didn't go out on the streets. People didn't go door to door. People didn't start giving out literature. People didn't start evangelizing passionately. What they did was they dropped to their knees and they asked, Holy Spirit, come. And people came. Because all we're doing is aligning ourselves with exactly what God wants. Is that none should perish. All should come to that phenomenal relationship with Christ. Clean hearts. And the last thing that I just wanted to pick up here this morning, as I draw things to a close here, is the importance of unity. Those five uh, first five chapters of the book of Acts just pick up on that whole understanding of being of one accord, being in fellowship, that they believed the same things, they acted in the same way, they had the same passion as one another. And that unity, that desire, that passion was so strong that how could God not use it? So it's making sure that we don't come with our own agendas. You know, there might be some things that you think about, well, in worldly wisdom, this is the wrong thing to do. But actually, in godly wisdom, maybe exactly the right thing to do. Just to say, as a church, to be mindful of the fact that a step of faith and an act of total stupidity look very, very similar. But when you step out in faith, You are trusting that God will turn it around. There are many opportunities that God has given us as a church to turn ourselves around, to turn this community around, to bring a sense of hope to those who find themselves hopeless. Jesus is the answer, and we know it. So let's pray that in. But we do it in unity. We do it together. We say that uh, I'm going to stand with my brother, honor my brother, affirm my brother and my sister. I'm going to make sure that nothing comes between us because unity is where God bestows a blessing. It's so important that Jesus prayed these words as he was preparing himself to go to the cross for us. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Well, that's us. The disciples have a message that they take out into the world and because that message has gone on from the next generation to the next generation to the next generation, 2,000 years have passed and it's now come to us. And we find ourselves in Jesus' prayer. And he says, this is the most important thing, that we would be one. All of us here would be one. But not only here, but in in the church over by Asda, we would be one. The, the, the churches in the town centre over Kempshot, we would be one. There would be such a clear, clarity of unity. Jesus prayed it. That we would be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And probably one of the, the biggest issues that we've got is disunity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. It's no wonder that the world isn't saved yet 2,000 years on. Because we put our own agenda above his agenda. There are some things that just don't really matter. 
unity matters. I remember making a decision in a church meeting in Bexhill, Hill. And at that church meeting, there was uh, our friend, Pastor Robert Maponier from uh, Uganda. And he asked whether he could come to the church meeting. And, and uh, you know, I said, yeah, of course you can. Not many people desire to be at church meetings usually, but that's great. Yeah, come along. And we were about to make a decision, and that was decision was stepping into um, part of the project of buying this hotel and uh, this old pub that needed an awful lot of work. And I can remember somebody standing up at that meeting and asking this question or, or making this statement. that, you know, what if we get it wrong? That was the question. What if we get it wrong? And then Pastor Robert, he he sort of asked if he could could speak. And, And it was beautiful because he just stood up and said, if you get it wrong, you get it wrong together. You get it wrong together. In a place where forgiveness flows that we continue to encourage one another and bless each other. There's no throwing of stones or backstabbing. We're just saying, that's okay. Okay. We didn't get that right. But we did it together. Unity is a non-negotiable. Jesus says we should be one. We need to do things together hold on to the importance of unity. The proverb writer reminds us that uh, there are some things that, that God doesn't like. And here is one of those things that God doesn't like. Six things the Lord hates, seven that he detests, and verse 19, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. Unity is important. Because you never go anywhere unless you go united. Because everybody's flailing with their own ideas. But once the body of Christ is united, wow. Paul reminds the church at Ephesus, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And we are united. My agenda is God's agenda. We spend time in his presence so we know, just as we spoke about with regard to Joshua and Elijah and Moses and Paul two weeks ago, we know what we can ask of God because we know God. But we ensure that we do so in unity. So here's some challenges. A week on Tuesday is our prayer meeting. This is a prayer meeting where I believe that uh, we might find a catalyst for transformation. And I'm inviting you to come. It happens every month on the uh, first Tuesday of the month. But I'd like you to come this coming Tuesday, a week Tuesday. It's one hour. We're going to pray from 8 till 9. But the important thing that I want you to do on this meeting is that when you come on the 7th of June, I want you to come with a list of five people that you 
are seeking would come to know Christ. This is something that we did with the uh, uh, material that we were using uh, previously in our, our, our small groups about reaching out to the community around us. And we were asked there to take five names. And I'd like you to bring them. Bring your five names on the 7th of June so that we can pray corporately together for those who we want to come to know Christ. We also will be praying specifically about the mission of this church. We pray very often, as we should, for issues and concerns outside of our realms. But we're going to pray on the 7th of June for this place. That we would be the people that God so moves that revival will come amongst us here. But I need you here. I need you to pray. So here's a challenge. If you've never done it before, come and give it a go. If you've been a regular in the past and you've dropped off, come back again. Come on the 7th of June. If you are a regular anyway, then it's great that you do and it would be great to have you here. And we're going to be in this room Together, one hour. It's an hour of power. Fourth. It's not the seventh. I think that's... Oh, no, I got that mixed up with um, our Prime Minister leaving, isn't it? Fourth. First Tuesday. It's not the seventh, it's the fourth. And there's a second thing that I need you to do as well. Just to bring you to an awareness that we as a church are joining with the other churches in this town on an initiative called Try Praying. The initiative is very, very simple. There is a booklet, and in the booklet, there are seven days' worth of directions on on prayer. And what we're going to do here is everybody here is going to get a booklet, and you're going to read it and take it as your devotions. I'm just telling you this is what you're going to do, and I'm asking you to do it. Because unless we do it together, then we won't get the benefit together. But we're going to do this. We're going to give out these booklets and um, to our mums and toddlers group as well, first steps. We're going to do it to our our, our connections group as well. We're going to get as many people as possible uh, going through this booklet. And the thing about it is, is once we've done it, you've done it for the week, you then have to go and give that book to someone else. And say to them, I've read this. This has helped me this last week, and I I just wonder whether you would like to try praying. Now, the thing about the Try Praying initiative is that the the one church uh, program that's been put together includes uh, advertising um, on on the local buses as well, and there's churches have got banners going up that say the words, Try Praying. So once somebody gets the book... It's amazing how God moves things together to reconfirm and to reiterate what he's trying to say to people. You'll find that they will be in the traffic queue and a bus will go past with the words, try praying. And they'll think, oh, that's that book that Dave gave to me. But all this is about us recognizing that prayer is a priority and something that we need to increase its focus on within the church. And there's two initiatives. It's not the 7th, it's the 4th. But come on the 4th, Tuesday the 4th of June, in here, 
one hour together and we're going to pray. We're going to split into groups. We're going to be moving around. If you don't like praying out loud, you don't have to pray out loud. If you've never prayed out loud and you want to give it a go, you can do that as well. You can pray in your language or somebody else's language, whatever you like. But the thing about it is this house will be called a house of prayer on that evening. And it would be great to have you here.